0: Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness.
1: And I'm Ann Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture.
0: I always say this when we have a guest. I'm super excited that we have another guest today, and our guest today is Allie Ingersoll, We met at a virtual networking event we had never met before, and during the introductions we were all doing on ourselves, she introduced herself as a day trader and disability advocate, and there was just something really magnetic about her energy. So after the call, we linked in, I started reading her posts, I found my way to her website, the Quirky Quad, and what I was really so struck by was her adventurous spirit, both before and after the accident, that left
2: her a quadriplegic.
0: And Allie, I'm going to turn it over to you to just tell us a little bit about your life and your journey.
2: Yeah, sure. Sherry, and thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. As you mentioned, I'm Allie, and I am a C6 quadriplegic. I am paralyzed from the chest down with some arm function and no hand function. Um, and I was injured in 2010 in a shallow water diving accident at my home in the Bahamas. So how it kind of came about, I have kind of had a wild life where I have a German mother and an English father, and we grew up in boarding schools all around the world. My dad worked a lot and traveled. And so my parents really just wanted us to be cultured. And at a very young age, I was the last of four children. So I think by that point, they said, you know what, kid, do whatever you want. <laughs> and so I started traveling the world alone at 14. And they said, you know, as long as you will pay for school, but you make your own money. And so I started traveling to um, China and Asia and Australia and I really got into these adventure travel programs where I would spend months in the outback in Australia hiking in the middle of nowhere hundreds of miles from anywhere with like six other individuals and we'd have to kill our own food and make our own tent hike some wow. water sources and you know I had a little bit of a party suit in me. Finally, um, after spending a few, I would, you know, uh, go out and hang out in the Playboy Mansion. And I had a friend who was a playmate there. So, you know, from one extreme of like five-star life down to camping in the Outback, it was so much fun. And I graduated high school at quite a young age, and I moved over to China and Asia. And I I didn't want to go to school yet. So I ended up working for a newspaper and eating and tasting food and writing about it and making my way as a foreigner around China back in 2000, I think dated an italian kickboxing instructor who didn't speak english and i didn't speak italian language of love yeah well (laughs) the language of love only gets you so far when you physically need to speak to the human being (laughs) so i learned chinese quite quickly and became fluent Mm. in it and we traveled all around together and we ended up in jail together as well up in northern china which was quite a crazy experience and you know naturally the relationship did not work out but it it was such a great experience and i always have this philosophy in life. I like to do things for the story, because you never know what's going to happen, kind of case point, strike match today. Uh, and so I wanted to have a life where at the end of it, I could think about all of the crazy experiences I've had in life. And in my early 20s, I was uh, working in politics in Miami. I, I transferred a few uh, universities and I graduated with some entrepreneurship program, University of Miami, and I was working in politics. And I wanted to affect change at a greater level. And I asked my dad one day, I said, how do I do that? And he said, well, you need to work for yourself. And I was 25. I said, great. Hey, how do I do that? Well, you can become a day trader. You know, that's what I'm doing. That's what he was doing at the time. Awesome. All right, great. How do I do that? Well, that, you know, here's the methodology. It's a well, thousand page course. You need to have the discipline to do it. I said, excellent. Two days later, called my job, quit, sold my car, sold everything I owned. Wow. Uh, Moved back home to Bahamas and started to learn how to day trade. And every day studying, you know, 12 hours a day, but in a gorgeous location on a very remote island called Cat Island, where we'd had a house for the last 45 years or so. Every generation kind of takes it on. And um, I was uh, kind of at the end of studying my uh, training course. I just like self-graduated, I guess you could say. And I was celebrating with some friends and I went out to this little tiki hut bar that was about like an eighth of a mile off the beach and you took half on the water to get to it. It was about sunset and I really hadn't had much to drink yet and I just took a shallow water dive, it was kind of dust and I just, my head just went smacking in the sand. And uh, we have it all, it's actually on my website, we have somebody caught it all on camera, like frame by frame by frame. They didn't show it to me until about six years after my accident. I thought it was so educational. So every year I post it and my mission is, you know, see first people, don't die. You know, I have a very dark sense of humor about things. (laughs) Fortunately, when I did break my neck, I held my breath and I was fully conscious. And so I'd known from much of my medical training for my wilderness survival program that I'd likely sustained a spinal cord injury. And my mom, oh gosh, my poor mom, she was there and they got me out of the water and they laid me flat and I explained to them what happened and I said don't move me no drinking no food um let's call a helicopter medevac jet because there were no doctors on the island at the time just some like kind of island nurses and it took them about seven or eight hours and we kind of made like a makeshift neck break and just waited for seven hours for this plane and there was this one random nurse on the island um, who was on vacation and I know it sounds very strange and people may not know what a catheter is, but if you don't have control of your bowel and bladder, it'll you pee and you don't want to burst your bladder. So she put a catheter in me and we made a makeshift nest brace waiting on the back of a pickup truck. Finally, my dad, who is a superstar, really, really smart, probably could be a doctor or a scientist if he wanted. He went on the Medivac plane with me and we were trying to fly to Miami to a top surgeon at the time at University of Miami at the uh, Miami Project. And we had a wall of thunderstorm, so we had to turn back. Oh, and we could go Elliot. to this random oh, island in the Bahamas called Nassau, it's the capital. And their medical care is, you know, very subpar at best. And they took an MRI and the doctor sat next to me and said, your daughter is paralyzed and she's never going to walk again. And I'm like, what? Sorry, what was that? At the time, um, when you break your neck, your body releases adrenaline for 24 hours. Once that 24 hours is up, you have your body produces dopamine, which controls your blood pressure. And if you do not have dopamine, then you circle the drain and you're done. So by the time we got back out and got to Miami, it was about 22 hours into my spinal cord injury. So basically, the swelling had set in because that's all a spinal cord injury really is: is bruising in the spinal cord, not breaking of the bones. And once you have a bruise in your spinal cord, it's permanent, and you can have it can be a permanent bruise, and it can be 360 degrees around, or you can have little holes in it, making an injury complete or incomplete, meaning if you're a complete injury, whatever level you're paralyzed at, that's it. You're you're kind of stuck with it for the most part. But if it's incomplete, you have a greater chance of regaining more motor function as rehab. But um, I woke up from surgery and they said, you know, I've got some bad news. You're paralyzed. And first thing on my mouth was no shit. I was like, that's okay. I get it. I'm paralyzed. I know what I'm dealing with. Like, what's the next step? I had a really supportive family because my dad said to me, listen, kid, you broke your body, not your brain. Your brain is totally fine. So get to work. So he brought the laptop and the training computer to me in the ICU. And he said, I will be, because my hands are paralyzed and um, I can only move my wrist, but I adapted behavior. And at that time I couldn't move anything. It felt like I was paralyzed from the neck down from all the ax muscles of not moving for weeks on end. And so tell him by yourself, by yourself. So, you know, and I had rehab every single day for months on end. And I spent, you know, the better part of two straight years doing eight to 10 hours of rehab all the time, hoping for functional recovery. But at that point, you know, you get to a point where there's two types of people. I think with quantum point injury, there's people that are on the hope screen and the realists. And I think it's important to have hope, especially if you're incomplete for all of the regenerative medicine advances and stem cells, et cetera. But I was already 27 when I broke my neck. And at this point, by 30, I didn't want to spend you know 10 years of my life constantly in rehab. I wanted to live my life. Unfortunately, I was one of the really unlucky few who sustained um, serious medical complications for six straight solid years. I mean, I had cervical cancer, pulmonary embolisms. I had multiple spinal surgeries, pressure sores. I mean, breaking your neck, I'm pretty used to being paralyzed, but having a pressure sore which is basically a bed sore there. If you sit and you don't move your butt, for example, for like uh, about two hours, your skin cells die. And that becomes a stage one pressure sore. And they can go down to stage four, which is down to your bone, basically. And when you're paralyzed and you don't have good blood flow, it can take months and years to heal. And you can be in bed for months and years, which I'll tell you about later, that i spent a lot of time with all these pressure sores. So I was dealing with so much. And a couple of years into my injury, I developed a really massive fist in my spinal cord. And not a lot of surgeons would touch me here in the United States because they said, until you lose further function or respiratory function, we don't feel comfortable operating on your spinal cord. And my dad, we looked at the surgeon, we said, are you, are you kidding? I'm already paralyzed on 80% of my body. How much more paralyzed do you want me to get? I mean, you're silly. So, my dad flew all around the world and met these incredulous and kind of tagged along with a group of Swedish scientists to China to so the People's Liberation Army. Met some amazing surgeons there. And just for the mere fact that China's, you know, 1.3 billion people or so, they have a lot more spinal cord injuries. And so, my dad said, you know, listen, kid, how would you feel about moving to China? to have surgery to remove the cyst inside your spinal cord, which is really dangerous. And I said, yeah, great. I can practice my Chinese. So my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters helped me move. We moved a quad all the way across the world. <laughs> and I was a little rusty in my Chinese at the time, but I had to learn neurosurgery in Chinese. Wow. And I had to learn caregiving in Chinese. because had two great little caregivers who were Chinese, but they didn't speak a word of English. So I was trying to teach them in Chinese how to change a catheter and looking at my dictionary like shit how the hell do I say catheter and And so I had the surgery there and it was the best and worst experience of my life I spent about three years in China from 2012 to 15 because they saved my life but something I didn't realize at the time which now I know but definitely made me stronger was that a lot of the Chinese they don't believe in pain management there's a philosophy for many thousands of years because of the culture where you suck it up, you don't complain, and that's it. So I woke up from spinal surgery with ibuprofen. I mean, that's it, ibuprofen. Oh, my God. Whoa. So they cut the back of my neck, something called a laminectomy, triple laminectomy, when the dorsal vertebrae, and they took out three of them and opened up the spinal cord. The videos are actually on YouTube. I got the Chinese to film my spinal surgery and put it up online. And that's wow. so not gross. It's not gross at all because there's no blood. It's a very low it's a very it's a very um on the growth scale very low <laughs> and so I woke up and I'm screaming I'm intubated and they wouldn't let me see my family and they tied me down with purple string onto a bed I remember purple for some odd reason and my brother flew over for the surgery and he rushed in and I think yelled or whatever he did so they weren't very familiar with morphine protocols so they overdosed me on morphine three times in a oh row my god so the walls were melting and the spiders were coming down. I'm like, ah, <laughs> no. So yeah, they finally got that kind of under control, and um, so I started. They had a rehab program there. A uh, scientist and up at uh, Rutgers University named Wise Young doing a stem cell trial over there, and they tried to set up a walking program with the philosophy that walking or at least assisted walking like with a specialized frame and your physical therapist pushing you back and forth to move your legs promote something called neuroplasticity so the mm-hmm. velocity neurons that wire together fire together wire, wire together fire together and my level was a little too far gone so i just wanted to go to the gym and go to rehab and i was in my neck brace still a month into my uh, after my spinal surgery and uh they wanted me up in the walking frame, and um, unbeknownst to me at the time, I had very severe osteoporosis, which is pretty normal for people with spinal cord injury, but mine advanced at such a severe rate, and we're not sure why. And so they snapped my knee in half. They broke my femur, and they broke my shin, and oh. it was swelling, and and I had I was, my blood pressure was all the, over the place, and they did an MRI, and the Chinese, unfortunately, they do not like to admit faults. They don't want to break the foreigner who's their prized little, you know, guinea pig. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 this was an old injury. So I was stuck in bed for, oh my gosh, another six months with a wow. broken leg and a neck brace. And, you know, I have a very dark, humored, quirky personality and I always find the bright side of things, but you know, that brought me into probably my darkest time, which I write about a lot where I became really suicidal, but not, how do I put this? positively suicidal in that responsibly suicidal. That's probably the better word where I talked to my family about it. I said, listen, I can't make a sentence. I can't think I love to read and write and trade, and I can't do any of it. And I was just sitting there in this tiny little place in China for so long. And I told everybody I wanted in a year, I wanted to go to Switzerland and I wanted to die. And I just wrote everybody letters and I kept having conversations and Some of my family at that time were against it. Some of them really understood like my mom who's there in day in and day out. And I just wanted people to be prepared for, you know, I think there's that movie me before you, I think it was, and there's a lot of controversy around that, but, you know, being in that guy's perspective, he was more paralyzed than I am. I get it. And if people are so judgmental on you can live and drink and do drugs and screw up your life, but you can't choose that you want to die. I just, I don't personally agree with that. I think that should be a choice, um, dying with dignity. And so the months rolled on and very, very slowly, my legs started to heal. Her name is Gumby now, my right leg, because <laughs> they didn't, they didn't put a cast on her. And so she healed in a hyperextended position. So it's pretty gnarly. You have to be very careful with her. She's temperamental. <laughs> she has her own identity. I'm actually gonna get a tattoo with the Gumby character on her next year to <laughs> mark it whenever I go to the hospital for the doctors. Like, do not fuck up this leg.
0: <laughs> oh my god, I, I love that you named your leg.
2: <laughs> I did. It used to be Thelma and Louise because they would have muscle spasms all the time. But yes, that was Gumby is now Gumby. So I got through that. It was it was really challenging because I've never been that way before. I've never felt so I was so alone. I didn't have a spinal cord injury Facebook network group yet. Cause it was only really starting on Facebook. And I didn't talk to a lot of my friends because I was in China, right? I didn't have anyone to talk to. And I'm one of the people that either like be super social or like leave me alone and I can sit there for 12 hours and just work. But I just kind of kept all my feelings to myself, which was mm. not great. And I didn't have a therapist or anything. Obviously, it was in China. And you know, my mom, she's I call her an endangered. She is the rock star of spinal cord injury moms. She is 75 now and she has dedicated the last 11 years of her life. And she hasn't had to, I haven't asked her to, to everything me. I mean, she's always there for all my other brothers and sisters, but when things go wrong or caregivers leave me or they do horrible things to me, she's always there. People always talk about, oh, your strength and you're inspirational and you do this. But I'll tell you something. When you see somebody who has a serious disability and they're thriving in life, they would not do that without the support around them. It's just physically not possible. Like You have to have that. So I attribute everything to everybody else. I mean, your story is amazing.
0: I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how your early years of those crazy adventures, or I'm sure you didn't think they were crazy, right? To somebody else, they sound like this just adventure travel, (laughs) right? And I'm just really curious to hear, was there a way in which that helped you navigate some of these horrible medical issues that you've had to deal with?
2: Yes, the adventures and my parents, because they always taught me at a very young age to be independent, think for yourself and figure it out and think logically, especially my dad. And so with a lot of these adventures, you know, you just take it as it comes. And I think it prepared me in such a profound way for patience and then navigating the unknown. So a lot of people don't like change. I get that. Right. And it's comfortable to be in your little bubble, but I've never been in a bubble before. I've moved every two years of my life. You know, even at a young age, you say, oh, well, what a great experience. Well, as a kid, that's challenging, right? You're moving every two years, making new friends, not keeping them. Ironically, Facebook now I keep in touch with hundreds of people I met throughout my life, which is pretty cool. But it's really hard as a kid so you have to become a, a chameleon and you have to adapt to your circumstances very, very quickly. And I think that helped me quite a lot. And also the fact that I think like 10 steps ahead. So I, you know, I have you should see my medical closet. I rather have it than not need it than need it and not have it. I have like a year's supply of everything. It's a little crazy, probably neurotic maybe OCD. I will give you that. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it's serving you really, really well.
2: It is because, you know, especially with my injury right, right now, everybody who um, has a spinal cord injury or a disability, they always have a couple of medical challenges that are just the nightmares in their life. So for example, some people get urinary tract infections a lot or respiratory infections. For me, it's osteoporosis. So I have to be really careful not to break my bones. So I do adventures, but cautious op- adventure. And the main one is pressure sores. So I'm like, princess in the P you just look at me. Like, I mean, I have a wrinkle in my pants, a wrinkle and I get a red mark by the end of the day. Wow. And that kind of led me after I moved from China, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. I didn't want to to be fair. I wanted to move back <laughs> to Miami. I love South Beach. I love my friends down there. I had a lot of great friends, but when you're quadriplegic, you need to be in your family for emergencies. And so my sister and brother-in-law are there. My mom and dad were going to move with me and my brothers are in Atlanta. So it's like a six hour drive. So it was a logical place to to go for me. And um, the moment I moved to Raleigh, I developed a very serious stage three pressure sore on my tailbone. So it was like down to the fat layer. And I went to so many wound doctors. Oh my gosh. For my doctor strategy, I interviewed four to five doctors. I have a list of questions. I'm like the 50 question patient that they either hate or love. And then I fire them and I determine which one I like the best, who's going to be work with me the best. And none of them were doing their job and the pressure store kept getting worse. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, there's got to be an underlying cause. What is going on? So I fired all my wound doctors and I found the best plastic, one of the best plastic surgeons in Raleigh. And I flipped on my bum and he looked at my tailbone and he said, Oh, yeah, I see what's wrong. I was like, what's wrong? Well, you were born with an extra vertebrae in your tailbone. Because you're paralyzed, you have no muscle mass back in your butt, even though I do electrical stimulation to keep some muscle mass back there. So you may do whatever you want, but this bone is going to constantly protrude out of your body. So we have to saw it off. I was like, oh my God. What now? (laughs) And and the procedure is called the costagectomy. I had to learn how to spell that many times.
1: (laughs) You'd have to say that one in Chinese, at least. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I don't even know if they have a translation for that one. And so at this point, I'd already been six months in bed with this pressure sore. And I started dating a guy when I moved to Raleigh because I spent the first five years of my life feeling completely asexual. Where I didn't want to really, I mean, I was wearing depends because you can't control your bladder and bowel. I mean, I'm very open about it, but a lot of people, it's a really sensitive topic. Yeah. And I gained a lot of weight when I first was injured because your hormonal system gets thrown off course. And when I first moved to Raleigh, there's a really cool young lady here in uh, Raleigh. Her name is um, Rachel Chapman. She's called The Paralyzed Bride. She was injured about the same time I was. She's a few years younger and she was pushed in a bachelor um, in a pool in her bachelorette party. And so she's like kind of social media famous. She befriended me and she introduced me to her neighbor. And I was really nervous because I never dated. And I, I'm the kind of person I woke up one day, I said, F it, you know what, what do I have to lose? I'm just going to start dating. Two weeks into my relationship though, you know, while the pressure store was kind of like slowly forming, I was like, you know what? I haven't had sex in five years. And I was like, a, well, let's just say I was a little promiscuous. On <laughs> my accident, I enjoyed sex very much. Growing up in Europe, being naked and enjoying sex was totally okay. In America, they seem to judge young women for that. But, you know, I wouldn't let guys sleep over. I had a very strict rule about that. I didn't have very long relationships. And... Uh, You know, I'm two weeks in and this guy, this should have been a flag. He's a very nice gentleman, but he told me he loves me in two weeks. And at that time, I just thought anybody that could like somebody in a wheelchair is pretty amazing. So I said, you know what? I need to have sex. We just have to try it. So I went out and bought lingerie with my mom and I got all set up and pretty and I was like, you know what? It's great. I'm like, I'm a Barbie. I'm like a paralyzed Barbie. You can just twist <laughs> me and bend me in any position you want. Be you careful with Gumby. Yes, kind of like Gumby. Yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. Your legs should only go so far behind your body in your head. Not a great idea. So I ended up going to the emergency room. And long story short, after multiple visits, they're like, "Well, what changed in your life?" I was like, "I only had sex." Come on. And they started laughing the, the resident out loud. and he goes and they they finally did a an x-ray of my sacrum area and I just yep hairline fracture right across the sacrum I was in bed for a few months but this guy he stuck with me he's like you know what you'll heal and I want to be with you I don't care about your disability I don't care about bladder and bowel issues and I wasn't 100% like I definitely didn't show him how to go to the bathroom and all of that in the morning because you know most people in, in well everybody in a wheelchair has some sort of bowel routine, because you know, we don't have the ability. Unfortunately, I don't know why our bodies were designed like this. But the core nerves that control bladder, bowel and sexual function are all wrapped around the tiny last part of your tailbone. I mean, so anywhere you break your neck and your back, your toes in that department for, for the most part. And so he stayed with me over the um, course of my recovery. We ran into some issues, though, because my pressure sore kept getting worse. And so finally, after seven or eight months, it was just too much. I had to focus on me. So we broke up. But he was, I call him my great starter boyfriend. You know, I I really learned a lot. (laughs) I experimented. I read about it. I didn't have my website or my blog yet at this time. And so I went in for surgery in January 2016 for this coxnagectomy. He um, sliced me open, sawed my tailbone down. Surgery went great. But he sort of neglected to put in a drainage tube. She's not brilliant. And so Ooh. I was bleeding back into my body for six weeks while I was uh, healing. Oh my God. I know. And I went back to him and I flipped over. I was on my belly and he goes, Oh dear. I was like, You can't. What do you mean, oh dear? That, Don't say that to That is not what order. you want to hear from a doctor. <laughs> no, not at all. And he goes, Well, I can feel your bone. What do you mean you could feel my bone? Yeah, his finger was all the way inside feeling the, his quote work that he had sawed my tail. tailbone. He goes, Well, you do have a pressure sore, stage four, we can get you a wound vacuum, it's it's a device that helps heal a a pressure sore, but it doesn't work very well for most. And um, I said, well, okay, well, how long am I going to be in bed now? Well, maybe a minimum of three more months, so three more months, yeah. And, And I said, well, what if that doesn't work? Well, then we have to do a major surgery called a flap surgery where we slice and dice your butt, I won't get into the nitty gritty. But we rearrange everything and got like really great arterial blood flow into your butt cheek. So we will just rearrange your butt for you, it's called flap surgery. And but then you'll have to be in bed you really can't move at all for another six months after that. Mm. So I did some calculations and I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to go into some severe depression." And I was having flashbacks to China and I just kind of, you know, seven months earlier moved to Raleigh and I thought to myself, I was like, "Okay, Allie." you have a couple things you've got it in the, how are you not going to get depressed looking at four walls? All right. So you are going to wake up every day, I wake up every day at 5:30. You are going to get up. You're going to do your bowel program. You're going to do your weights in bed. You're going to meditate for an hour a day. You are going to finally join these spinal cord Facebook groups. You keep hearing about and become friends with people all around the country. Then you're going to spend an hour reading and a couple hours trading every day and you're going to make a schedule. So I'll keep myself busy every single day. So my mind wouldn't drift off into those dark places. And it really didn't. Ironically, I really didn't hit that dark spot that I hit in China. And I probably because I'm known for like a veteran of like spinal cord injury war from China, where I, you know, I mentally prepared myself. And I'm really good at compartmentalizing. Yes, not always the best technique, but as I have a therapist now, because I think it should be a life requirement to have a therapist, pay taxes, have a therapist, right? (laughs) Indeed. Uh And she said, you know what, in certain cases, you know, compartmentalization is actually a very useful tool, as long as it's not self-destructive. But most importantly, I said, okay, if I have four months, and I'm going to have to probably get this major surgery, which I I knew I was going to, because I, I read the statistics and the papers on it, I'm going to go out. If this surgery kills me, I think it was like my 7th or 8th surgery. I'm going to go out with a bang. And I'm going to have a <laughs> lot of freaking fun. And I, I told my mom this. because what do you mean? I go, you know what? I am going on online dating. <laughs> <laughs> I signed up the next day for OK Cupid. And I said, okay, four months. How many guys can I sleep with and date and write about? <laughs> and that's how the quirky quad came about. It started out just about sex and disability and and sexuality. It wasn't supposed to be crude or lewd, but just that you can have fun because a lot of my friends in wheelchairs, they're just not very open and they get nervous about showing guys their catheter, or getting dressed, and all of that fun jazz. And so I um, averaged about four guys every two weeks <laughs> for a couple months. And I had this giant wound vacuum on my butt. It was like the foam you put in the wound and it sucks it, like a vacuum seals it, and it's like a tail. And you have a little box and you hook it you know, to your bed. And I wasn't supposed to get out of bed, but I said, you know what? If they're going to cut this thing out in a couple of months anyway, I'm getting my ass out of bed and I am going to spend four or five hours up and I'm going to go on dates. And because I was on a time crunch, I had a three policy underwear date. So if you were mildly, if you were moderately interesting to me, and you made me laugh, and I also had to make guys feel comfortable with my disability, I mean, the first date I had, I got stood up actually by a fireman, and I called him <laughs> up. I go, seriously, not only did you see a woman on under- a situation and wheelchair, you can't. I was sitting in the coffee shop for an hour alone, and he's like, yeah, in hindsight, not brilliant. I was like, yeah, I hate the stereotype of firefighter right now, but I definitely am doing that. And- <laughs> And so so I met some interesting guys. Some were crazy, some were weird, some were funny. I wasn't interested in dating whatsoever. But the underwear date was that I would, you could come up to my place and I'd be in pretty lingerie. So you didn't have to undress me figure it all like I believe especially in dating in the beginning you want to be open and honest about your disability but it's also that time where it's supposed to be sexy and you are supposed to get to know one another and mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to just see all of the nitty-gritty of what goes on with like spinal cord injury caregiving you have to introduce people into that and I get arguments sometimes from friends on this very topic where they say no they need to accept me right away I said it's a lot you know I, I hate to say it and I'm I'm tra- trying to go against the spinal cord injured community, but there's not a man men or women who they're not all equipped to deal with what comes with a severe disability, and that's okay. Some guys don't like big boobs or larger women or really skinny women, and when you find someone who can look past that, I think that's amazing. But just not everyone's equipped to handle it, and I ran into that myself. So. Mm. On our third underwear date, we would, you know, lingerie. I, I will not go into the details on your podcast, but you know, you can use your imagination. And I would have him leave a couple hours later, and then I would be on to the next guy. And you, know, and, and you know, somebody said, "You know, aren't you ashamed?" I was like, "Ashamed of what? You're sleeping with a lot of guys." I said, "Listen, it's been five years. I may die. No, I, I am not ashamed of, of this. And hopefully, and I, the quirky plot started, and it started on my Facebook page before I started the website." And I got an overwhelming response of women that were like, this is hilarious. I don't think I would ever do this particular story, but you've given me the confidence. Can you help me write my dating profile? And so I started helping people. It just kind of happened organically. And one of my gentleman callers is my now husband, actually. Aww. Yeah. And um, I told all the guys for surgery two weeks that I was going to break up with them. I told him, his name is uh, Aaron. And uh, Aaron said, well, no, I don't want to break up. I go, well, I'm leaving. I'll be back in six months. I'll call you when I'm done doing what I'm doing. And he goes, no. And so I fessed up to what the deal was because one night when we were together, actually, the bandage from my bum had like fallen out. And I'm like, oh, dear God. Oh, oh dear no. God. No. <laughs> he goes, why is there gauze on the floor? I go, just, just take it out of the bed. Nothing. I, You know, I had a little scrape on my butt. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And so uh, he goes, Well, there's only one thing to do. And he called me up and he says, Will you be my girlfriend? And I'm thinking to myself, What is wrong with this man? (laughs) A going in for major pressure sore surgery. I'm going to be confined to a literal bed for another six months after already being six months. Because I'll get to know you the old fashioned way. I'll visit you in the ICU and I'll come see you all the time. And
0: I'm at that guy.
2: time I know at the time I just thought he would be a passing amusement to keep me amused in the hospital <laughs> and I forgot to tell my family that I was dating anybody this guy <laughs> shows up with flowers and a teddy bear I think his picture's online somewhere and they're like who is this guy like, oh, <laughs> guys, this is my boyfriend Aaron and how my family looked at me like are are you what are you that I'll shoot for four months what is wrong with you <laughs>
1: Ali, I mean, I just have to say, like from the very beginning of your story, from the accident. I mean, one of the things that I wrote down that you said is when you came out of that first surgery, when you first figured out what was going on, you said that's okay, right? And your dad too, like jumped in right away and brought you your books in the in the hospital, and you were day trading from there. But and I so appreciate what you said about paying homage to your family and your caregivers, and it sounds like there's some good stories with Aaron too that I want to hear about. But there's something inside of you that really has this positivity. And even when you were thinking about perhaps ending your life when you were in China and it was those dark days, I mean, even then you called it a positive suicide and and thinking about it in in those ways. And I'm just so curious, where does that come from for you? How do you maintain that
2: positivity? I have been getting asked that question a lot, like Mm. a lot recently. And I don't, I mean, inside I do have darkness. We all have darkness inside of us. And I get, you know, I suffer from like, severe anxiety with like being left by a caregiver for some of the horrible things they've done for me. But I don't know if this is genetics or just because of the way I grew up. But I have this weird ability to, if I have a bad day or moment, I sleep it off, I need an hour or I need five minutes or just one night. And I wake up the next day and I'm like, I kind of just get on with it almost like a soldier, like, this is the way life is. I can't change that. I'm going to die anyway one day. I mean, it could be tomorrow, could be in 10, 15 years. Things are just going to be more challenging as I get older with a spinal cord injury. That's just a medical fact. And I don't want to waste any time that I have. And when I started to help people, um, specifically when I came back from China, it made me feel great. So I had this discussion with someone about, is there such a true thing as altruism? Is it selfish to want to help people because it makes you feel better? I mean, Mm. I know right now in the psychology community, that is a debate going on right now. But it makes me feel awesome to be able to help somebody and be like, you just made my day brighter or you helped me with an insurance battle or whatever it may be. And so I don't know, partly genetic and partly just the way I grew up.
1: Yeah. And it it sounds like you've built in some practices as well, right? Like, you know that you need that five minutes or that hour or that overnight in order to kind of almost like refresh and wash it through or something and then kind of move on.
2: I do. I have this ability to not hold on to too much at the same time. Like I can, I can let it go. And maybe I think a lot of that comes down to... The fact that I suffer from debilitating nerve pain. So everywhere I'm paralyzed, like from the boobs down back my arms everywhere, it's like burning pins and needles 24/7. So I wake up, like, you know, when your arm falls asleep, and you have to shake it, and you get those pins and needles, that's what I have all the time. Mm. So I wake up, it's seven out of 10. And when I go to bed, it's usually nine or 10 out of 10. And I just have to be very still and have alley time as I call it. Because I can work for 16 hours a day, but my body doesn't always give that to me. And so when I have a lot of stress in the household, and I've really only learned this much better over the last few years to just let things go because I would hold on to that anxiety all the time for so many years because we were going from battle mode to battle mode to battle mode and I never had time to process my feelings or my emotions or what had actually happened to me. And I finally had a therapist five years later and was like, have you ever even dealt with the accident? And I don't actually think I had dealt with it. I'm not sure if I have or I just had like radical acceptance quite quickly. And that's just maybe one of my little superpowers, I think as a superpower, you know, I have my challenging times too. And I worry about, you know, I worry about the future, about what it's going to be like when my mom's not around, she's 75 and she's my backup. I have my husband, of course, but my mom is my mom, right? How am I going to handle that? But every time like terrible things have been thrown my way, I somehow, I think we all do as human beings find this incredible way to adapt, whether we like it or not, because that is life. That's and right. it's short and it's finite.
0: Yeah. I totally agree that as humans, we are really, really adaptive. And there's something about you or in you or that you have consciously cultivated that has allowed you to still find joy and positivity without pretending all these other really hard things are happening. Yeah. After we met at that virtual networking event, And then we had LinkedIn, I said to Anne, oh my God, like I kind of met, like, I don't even want to say I met, met because we were in this virtual group. It's not like we even had a one-on-one conversation, but I said, God, there is just something like this light that shines out of you or this magnetic energy. And when we did a Zoom call, right. And just um, had some one-on-one time, what really comes through, whether it's conscious or it's innate is this commitment to positivity you know, one of the things you talk about in one of your blog posts is your absolute commitment to not allowing anyone in your space that is negative or not positive. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that because that's such a conscious, important choice.
2: I call them psychic vampires. They Mm. just suck the living heck out of you. And at this point in my life, and I think this probably comes back to being a loner because I moved so much. I always had groups of friends in different pockets. I had my intellectual friends, my party friends, my travel friends. So I could always separate the people in my life. And I found large groups of girls. It's just not my, I respect large groups of girlfriends. I don't particularly have them because there's just so much drama going on all the time. And so then with spinal cord injury, people that have that negative energy, they make my pain worse and they make my anxiety, and my stress. So you can be negative. That's fine. I just will actively choose not to hang out with you. I need people. We all have our bad days, right? Nobody's perfect, but I actively need people who are going to bring positivity. Even at five 30 in the morning, I'm not asking you to dance around and be like, Hey, but you know, good morning. How are you doing? You know, it's my caregivers, my husband, my mom, and that, that kind of thing is really important to me. And if not, if I don't get that, then I do kind of retract a little bit and I'll reassess you know the people that are in my life and you know kind of course correct I call myself the scientist in my own life I'm constantly course correcting all the time and you have to experiment and you have to figure out what works but you can't be afraid of change either I mean change can be scary but you know I love the fact that I never know what's going to happen tomorrow like I work my butt off but every Saturday I go out my husband whether it's in Raleigh or we're on a crazy wacky trip together and I leave that time open to do whatever I mean, we do really wacky things from dressing up a banana and doing banana bar crawls, you know, or going furry hunting because apparently there are adults that like to dress up in giant furry costumes and I actually stalked them one day in a park because I wanted to see a damn furry, you know, but those like weird little memories, you're not just going to remember Saturday, you're going to remember the weekends or that experience that you had, you know.
0: Yeah. Okay, I have to jump in here for a sec since I'm in Raleigh as well. Where might I run into you dressed as a banana? Because I really, really want to see that.
2: Okay, so Eventbrite <laughs> is a company all around the country. And they do themed, obviously not with COVID, they do themed pub crawls. They have like um, 90s or bananas and you get the costume and you go with a group of random individuals. And I love to meet random individuals Mission every weekend because you never know who you're going to meet or how they're going to affect your life. And so, yes, I will let you know the next time the banana crawl goes.
0: Yeah, let me know when there's a banana crawl so, happening. I um, will not be dressing up as a banana, but I really want to be a, an outside observer of it. You say that
2: now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and very I mean, convincing. Anne,
0: and Anne's over there thinking, I want to see the picture of Sherry dressed as a banana. And more than that, <laughs> she wants to see me convince my husband to do it, too. <laughs> oh,
2: I think very convincing of my husband to do that. There you me. go.
1: I love that. Well, and if you are, uh, furries are big out here in San Francisco. So I'm just saying here, the invitation I didn't know is open. About
2: them and I didn't know, I didn't know any, I didn't even heard of one. And I was on a on I was like, some sort of furry convention. I'm like, a furry what? And then I guess there's <laughs> positive and negative for them. But I'll leave yes. got for different conversation. Exactly. All right.
1: Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Quirky Quad and that you're starting to talk about that, how it kind of was birthed from Facebook and then some of your advocacy work as well. I'm really interested yeah, in what, what you're so, up to now.
2: After the Quirky Quads, it started out as a sexuality blog. And then I started getting, I'm really good at following through. Like I have the ability to sit there for eight hours and just LinkedIn people, boom, 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 or connect on Facebook because they look like really interesting people. And so I started to fight a lot of uh, my own health insurance battles. It's kind of how my advocacy got started. Um, I kept getting denied by Blue Cross and Blue Shield for everything. And so I kind of learned to make... Writing appeals and art, it's an art form, and I'm a writer. So I would do a lot of, I would read hundreds of peer review papers. I would write these amazing letters of medical necessity, and I have a doctor who's fortunate, he trusts my judgment. So he would just sign off to them. I would do all my own paperwork. So for a lot of key pieces of medically necessary equipment, such as pressure relieving mattresses, bed frames, shower chairs, seat elevators for power wheelchairs, power wheelchairs, things that when you're disabled and in a wheelchair, you really, really need, and insurance ironically denies you all the time. So I fought many battles, did news stories on ABC and News & Observer, and people really started to reach out to me. And I thought, wow, this is a really good platform to just help people, like not to make money, just to help people. And so I started helping people and, and getting gaining a lot more attention and then starting getting really connected with the Christopher Reeve Foundation and United Spinal Association, which is the largest spinal cord injury association in the country, and making sure I had to know all the players. And then I realized I need to get more involved at the local level. So I was appointed to the Governor's Council for the Statewide Independent Living Council um, just recently. And I'm on the board of a Center for Independent Living to help people with all kinds of disabilities live in communities of their choice and help them with jobs and life and, and, you know, figuring out how to get to work and and all those wonderful things. And so now I just have a really big network. And, you know, I have my day job and I'm in a really interesting turning point because I'm working a lot with legislators as well to hopefully introduce legislation for medically necessary equipment that's not covered under many insurance policies which is like a blanket policy. So for example, I had a uh, adaptive rowing, I needed an adaptive rowing machine. It's about $3,500. And I made an amazing argument about how these secondary complications would ensue without proper physical exercise. But many insurance policies, Medicare included, don't cover adaptive exercise. And they just umbrella it under physical exercise equipment. There's not a distinction. So I've been rejected. I've actually lost count. My favorite quote is Winston Churchill's. The definition of success is moving from failure to failure without lack of enthusiasm. And I have been rejected so many times by Blue Cross. I've actually lost count. And I even tried to think other legal avenues where I could sue them. In any event, I was kind of told, bottom line, that I'm going to have to change policy. So I'm working with some of state senators here in um, North Carolina to see if we can introduce some legislation in January and then the media. So I finally got CBS, agreed to take the Glide story. So I'm working on that with them now. And so my real passion is just to pay for it. I love to help people. One challenge I am running into, though, is that I say I have this problem of saying yes way too much and I'm only one person yep. and I work you know, even though my, my hands are paralyzed I call them my little paws. I have a whole computer adaptive setup and I work very quickly so what takes most people 12 hours I can literally get done in six because I have the opposite of ADD like I can just sit there and out and have people in the background talking and I can still just work it's another one of my little superpowers which is great but exhausting at the same time. So
0: can you sell that? <laughs> exactly. I'd like some to that. Up, Can you bottle and... that up? Because yeah. I know there's a big old market for that. <laughs> you, you know, so much of what you are talking about is in a context that most of us have never experienced and hopefully will never experience oh, I hope is not. so applicable, though. Your comments about Right. Psychic vampires and never giving up and- Positivity. Positivity and being resilient and- Just grabbing life by
1: the balls, whether right. you are in a chair or not. I mean, your life pre-chair was just going for the gusto and your yeah. life post-chair. Oh my God, I am picturing third date underwear night. Like- <laughs> And I'm what? telling you, I've been on these dating sites for years. And I
2: have not had the success that you've had. So think <laughs> disasters actually lead to the best stories. But also knowing that positivity, like also accepting when I'm having a bad day, like it's okay to not be okay. Most people that live alone or are married, they can walk out of the house. I don't have that ability. So remember, I have caregivers and husbands and mothers and people that are helping me 24-7 take care of me. So I have to build a little thicker of a skin, I think, than a lot of people or or people with disabilities do because I can't just be like, you know what, just just get out. Or I can't just yell at somebody because these are people that are physically helping me. So I sometimes... I this is not always healthy. I have to just put away my own feelings because I have for the better of the household and everybody else's emotions. So everybody can work cohesively to help take care of me. And that is a really challenging aspect. I work with my therapist on to deal with. But unfortunately, I, again, from a positive side, that's life. I mean, that's what I have to deal with. That's my burden to bear. And I get that. And I, I slowly Accept that more and be able to let it go. It doesn't matter. Life isn't fair. Life's never going to be fair. You know, I, I love how people think. They're like, "Well, that's not fair. That happened to me." I'm like, "Well, who told you that? Who told you life must be <laughs> fair when you were up?" I mean, I never got that memo. Right. So, you know, it is what it is.
0: As you think back to little Allie, right? Mm-hmm. So young, still, your whole life sitting in front of you. And knowing all the experiences that have happened to you since then, the good, the hard, the bad, the wonderful, what words of wisdom would you have for her?
2: Well, number one, don't dive. (laughs) That would be my first one. Number two, I would probably tell her to... Oh gosh, this is a really good one because when I was really, really young, I was bullied so severely because I was a really overweight kid with glasses and braces. And I would I had to move school that was bullied so seriously. So I'd probably talk to her and I would tell her to probably lean on my loved ones more and that to talk to them and don't bottle it up. I think a lot of like a lot of kids and probably adults, we bottle so much up and we don't talk to those that we love to like depend on because we don't want to look weak. I mean, I admit it, I don't want to look weak either, but I write about it now and I talk about my weaknesses and the strengths and it actually makes me feel stronger and it helps other people knowing that we're not alone in these struggles.
0: Right. And I think that's such applicable advice, I know for me, for Anne, and for all of our listeners around don't bottle up things, right? Be more open and don't worry about looking weak. Just such universally wonderful advice. Yeah.
1: Allie, it's been such a delight to have you today. I mean, you started, one of the very first things you said this morning was you really like to do things for the story. And then one of the most, the things you just said is some of the biggest disasters lead to the best stories. And they so do. I I just have to say what an amazing story that you have and just how uh, lucky we are to have gotten to have some of this time with you today. We really, really appreciate it.
2: Oh, I've had yeah. so much fun. I love your podcast. I listen to all of them. I think it's oh, such good. a cool podcast that you guys the Perfectly Imperfect Journey. It's the best name ever, actually. <laughs>
0: that's awesome. oh, Thank you. That's awesome. Well, to echo Anne, it has been such a delight to have you on here. And on that note, uh, that's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for listening to Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey. And we'll catch you on our next episode.